Hey, everybody. I'm Amna Navaz. Welcome to Uncomfortable. The goal here is to have honest, unflinching conversations about some of the things that may divide us as Americans. We like to take big ideas and shake them around a little bit. So I'm really excited today to welcome Sophia A. Nelson to the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for coming. So we should note you are the author of the book, E Pluribus One, Reclaiming Our Founders' Vision for a United America. Yes. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank um, you. I know it's been out for a bit now, but it's sort of coming up in conversation yes. again and again because of everything we're going through mm-hmm. as a country, which we're going to talk about for sure. But one of the things we like to do here also <laughs> is kind of understand our guests and how they got to where they are today. So I'd love to know everything you want to tell us about your childhood, how you My grew up, where you grew up. Wow. Well, um, <clears throat> I just had a big birthday in January. I turned 50. Oh, congratulations. And, um, as traumatized as I am by that. (laughs) (laughs) We had a great big party. Uh, Everybody was there. I saw people I hadn't seen in about 30 years or more, but it was great. Um, I grew up, my dad was in the military, in the army, so kind of all over, uh, mostly in the um, uh, northeastern, southeastern United States region. And um, so I grew up with a melting pot of people. Uh, we're an African-American family, and when we moved into our neighborhood, we were the first black family. So I, I vividly remember that as a child and kind of the way that was not so well received. Um, but then ultimately the neighbors and, you know, we became part of the community and, you know, grew up there, went to high school and, and went off to college. But so I grew up with a melting pot of Irish Catholics, Italian Catholics, Polish Catholics, and and then us. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it was good for me, I think, and it helped to uh, form me as a person who uh, appreciated other people and other experiences, which I've tried to carry throughout the rest of my life. So my early childhood um, in southern New Jersey, actually, and, mm-hmm. and right at the foot of Philadelphia. And then, again, you know, we moved around a little bit. I was actually born in Munich, Germany. Oh, okay. Uh, my dad was stationed on Checkpoint Charlie, which was the wall, which no longer exists. Wow. That's how old I am. And How uh, long did you live there? Uh, I think till I was two. Okay. Uh, so I don't remember yeah. any. Uh, I want to go back, certainly. Um, I've never been to Munich, and I hope to go at some point to uh, visit. And uh, But so, yeah, I have this interesting back, and I have one brother who also uh, was a military officer, well, retired now. But, um, you know, uh, two Two parents, two kids, um, normal uh, middle-class family. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew we were going to go to college. That was a no-brainer. Uh, both my parents grew up pretty poor, and, um, you know, I think that they really stressed that we would have to do something different. We would have to, you know, my mom, I remember her saying to me, I think it was in first grade, so we're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Which one? Pick one. It was one or the other. <laughs> and I like to talk, so we knew it was <laughs> going to be law and not medicine. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think I had a normal childhood. Yeah. Um, growing up a, a young woman of color. Um, Especially in neighborhoods where there weren't other families like yours. Yeah. What did that mean for you? What were the lessons that you learned? You know, I went to kindergarten with the same people I went to high school with. And ironically, my high school um, had about 800 people total. So each class had about two something. I was class president all four years. Um, Again, this black girl who did very well with people who didn't look like her. And I guess I just, I don't know if I never thought about it, if it didn't click with me. My dad is, uh, my dad's mother, uh, she's deceased now, is Caucasian. And so my grandmother being white and having my great-grandfather uh, white. I remember him the time I was seven. He mm-hmm. died. Um, and so 
maybe that's it. It was in my family, so it didn't phase me. I don't know, but I just somehow managed to deal with people as people, even as a young person, and have them treat me the same, which was really interesting. But when I look back and I look into my high school yearbook, you know, when you get to be this age, you start looking back, right? (laughs) And you look at some of the comments people made um, about what they thought I would turn out to do with my life, and it's almost to the letter. And they're like, you're going to be the first woman president. And I don't know if that's going to (laughs) happen. But um, But you're not ruling it out. I'm not ruling it out, maybe. But But if you were class president all four years, (laughs) I I say you were setting a standard. Yes, in a majority white very majority white i think there but were so 10 is, blacks in my high school class yeah i think this is uh, the uh, the parallel here is sort of striking between the stories that you're telling about your family and i remember what president obama used to talk about mm-hmm. during his campaigning days mm-hmm. early on as a senator mm-hmm. when he would say i'd walk into a room of white people and not see people who aren't like me i'd see my grandparents yep so that Same was that here. similar for you? Very similar because again, if it's if it's how you grow up and it's at your dinner table and you, when you know, and when my grandmother died, I was she was seventy five when she died. She died two two thousand, so it's been seventeen years now. Mm-hmm. But uh, I adored her because she was the grandmother we grew up with. The other grandmother lives in California and still alive at almost ninety. She's amazing. But <clears throat> my dad's mom was our heartbeat so that was normal to me and I remember when we went to the store people would look at us strange like why is that white lady holding that little black girl's hand or maybe they thought she was my nanny or something did you ever get questions about it she did I never forget one time we were at a at a straw bridge and clothier which doesn't even exist anymore outside of Philadelphia that's how old I am (laughs) and um she um somebody said something smart I don't know racial and my grandmother went ballistic i I don't remember the conversation, but I remember that. What did she say? Incident. Where, well, you probably don't want me to repeat what she said. <laughs> Let's keep it family friendly. <laughs> Safe to say. She was not a happy camper with them questioning yeah. why she was with me. And she was my grandchild. So, yeah. But you're talking the 1970s. So, the you know, the late 1970s. It's a different world back then than it is now. So much of your work now focuses on politics, mm-hmm. on social issues, on sort of the big ideas of our time. What, was that a thing in your house growing up? Was that stressed to you? Like, these are important things you need to you need to concern yourself with? Yes. You know, yeah. I am the Alex P. Keaton in my family. If you remember <laughs> Michael J. Fox, I big Democrat family, and I came home and announced I was a Republican in college. I met Jack Kemp uh, my sophomore year at San Diego State University. Mm-hmm. He was he played for the Chargers. He was running for president at the time. That was the first election I could vote in. And uh, I loved him instantly. I thought he was amazing. I'm like, wow, he's different. And I grew up in a very Democrat Aryan household. And so was politics a thing, though? Like, yes, did you know you were a Democrat? A, a, a big thing. Well, I knew my parents were. My mom hated Richard Nixon. And I vividly remember her having books about him and Nixon's palace guards. I mean, I have these images. She she would have leaflets. She would hand them out, you know, around the time of Watergate. Right. So she was very engaged. My dad, less so, more laid back about it, but my mom definitely. Um, and so for me to come home and be a Republican was hilarious. Yeah, how did that go over? Uh, they, you know, they got over it. It's all good now. <laughs> now, sure. But back then, <laughs> what was that conversation like? Um, I think that, you know, what do you do when you're kids come home from college and say, I mean, I was, you know, again, a standout student and doing well. So they didn't give me much grief about anything I did because right. I was straight laced, Girl Scout, did everything by the book. So they Maybe they thought it was my a judgment. They probably <laughs> did, but it's it, it lasted. Um, although, as I was telling the lady in, in the makeup this morning that, um, you know, the last three elections, um, you know, 
08, 12, and now mm-hmm. I voted Democrat all three times. Oh, so I definitely want to ask you. I'm about concerned this, about me. I think so. Well, let, let me ask you this: When <laughs> back when you met Kemp, because you've talked about that being uh-huh. such a pivotal moment yes. for you, mm-hmm. what did it mean to you? Because growing up and hearing about Nixon and mm-hmm. sort of like these are what Republicans are, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. spoke to you that said yes, this is the party? Because you don't have to join the political party right. either. So, right. what spoke to you about what you were seeing that said these are the folks for me? Well, if you remember about Jack, and he was everybody's favorite Republican, right? Because he was conservative on taxes and fiscal things and defense, but very much a conservative with a conscience. He understood, you know, as a football player, here was a guy who said, I'm going to room with black players. And if we're not, we're not playing there. So here was a guy who came up around the civil rights era. And, and so he was talking about the importance for African-Americans to be part of both parties. He was talking about the importance of African-Americans and in the history of the Republican party being really good up until, Really, Nixon gets in in 68, right? I mean, you know, that pivotal moment where the Democrats begin to get the black vote is when JFK calls Coretta Scott when Martin Luther King's in jail. That was a big shift because blacks were Republican all the time from Lincoln all the way up till mm-hmm. there. Most people don't know that. And so Kemp talked about the great legacy of Lincoln, the party of Lincoln. But then I love this economic development. And he talked about pulling yourself up, but that the government does play a role, that African-Americans and the legacy of uh, being inventors and creators and business owners and, you know, home ownership. So he really wanted to empower African-Americans and people of color in a way that they had their own destiny in their own hands. They mm-hmm. they had their own stuff. They could, no matter if they lived in Cabrini Greens in St. Louis, Missouri, or wherever they were, his thing was you can own something and we can help you do that, and we can help create a better life where you are in control of your life. So that was very attractive to me. I so thought that was different. As a lawyer, then, you went on to work for the party for mm-hmm. years and mm-hmm. years, right? Mm-hmm. You were you worked on the Hill. Worked uh, you served on, on George W. Bush's um, legal team, legal team twice, in 2004 uh-huh. as well. Uh-huh. And then you wrote something that caught my attention because ultimately you decided this party no longer speaks to me. And when you made that decision, you wrote this. You said, throughout my years in the GOP, I came to see that loyal and dedicated African-American Republicans like me were not welcome in the party. What did you mean by that? And it's still true. And, um, you know, I wish my friend Michael Steele was here so we could both talk to you about this together. We could go in because we both been around a really long time. Yeah. And, you know, it was never a comfortable place in the Republican Party. You know, once George Herbert Walker Bush, um, Daddy Bush, who's the first person I worked for, and I worked for Senator Pete Wilson, and those were moderate Republicans. And then I went to work for Christy Whitman when I got out of law school. Wonderful. I was hoping she would be our first female president. Uh, but she was pro-choice, so that was a death sentence for her in the GOP, which is ridiculous. I happen to be pro-life, but I don't mind if someone else has a different point of view to me. Right. That's America. And so the Republican Party has morphed into this party that has become a very white, regional um, – I don't want to use the word angry because that's not fair. There are parts in this last election you saw it come to life – where, but what did you you spent twenty years plus, in yes. the party? Right. What did you see happening either to you or to other people that kind of built up over time? Well, all you have to do um, is look at where you see the Republican Party in twenty seventeen in the Trump administration. There is uh, Ben Carson is the Secretary of HUD. That's pretty much it. I'm very tied into who's getting in, who's what, whatever. 
they haven't called people like me and people like Michael Steele now. My girl, Nikki Haley, who I love, who I think is probably going to be the first female president, she's at the U.N. She's doing a great job, right? She was very critical of Trump during the campaign, very mm-hmm. critical, wouldn't support him. She gets a job. But the African-Americans who criticize Trump, they're banished. They're blackballed, no pun intended. Look at that young man. It was all over the news wires. Um, there was a young man at HUD that had been hired, um, young black male, which so few of them, right? Wants to support this administration. Good guy. I think he supported somebody else in the primary. When they found out, they fired him. It was all over the national newspapers. That's the kind of foolishness the GOP does that really irks me. And they don't tap into, there are a lot of good African Americans who could serve and serve this president well and help him build inroads, but they're not interested in it. I mean, Omarosa's there, but you know, that's a different conversation. I do think. you, in your years of service to the party, do you think you were looked over for oh, advancement because you're African-American? I make this absolutely yes. I, Kellyanne and I are the best comparison. We are 12 days apart in age. We've been friends since our early 20s. Our mothers met each other and introduced us. We grew up around the corner from each other. Working class, blue collar kids, we're the same. If you compare our resumes, we're identical. One of us is a multimillionaire and, and counselor to the president. The other one does all right, but nowhere near that stress for now. I'm not blaming anybody or anything, but I am making a point that a lot of what we see in our culture right now, white women have made enormous strides. The real beneficiaries of affirmative action are white women. It is not women of color or men of color. The numbers just bear that out. In the GOP, magnify that times 200. And again, take a look at who Trump has around him. There there are no Sophia Nelsons, which is utterly ridiculous. Not that I would work for him. He's not someone I would be comfortable working for. But my point is, is that there are good people who are getting passed over Whereas, again, if you were critical of him in the election, you're Caucasian or whatever, that doesn't seem to be an issue. Remember, Kellyanne worked for Ted Cruz and was very critical of Donald Trump. But let me take you back to the moment where you decided this is not the party for me, because that was way pre-Trump. Way, way pre-Trump. That was 2008 or so? It was around 2000. After the 2004 campaign, I was just kind of turned off just because it was the same old... It was the same people you see them over and over again. They're regurgitated. There is a lot of blackballing that goes on. There's just a lot of insensitivity but to isn't that just politics? Um, you think there was a racial component court, that was clear? Again, the numbers tell – I don't need to say anything else to look at the numbers in the Republican Party. They're terrible for people of color and African Americans in particular – it's abysmal. It's horrible. It's embarrassing. So here's what I wonder, because I was reading through, because you've written a lot about it over the years. Since the since 90s. Since 2004. Yes, since the even 90s. since the 90s. But really, I mean, really once you decided to, to leave, yes. it took 20 years yep. for you to get there. Yep. Why? Why did it take so long? Well, I think because I was uh, working in the process and I'm always an optimist. I'm the eternal optimist. And I think that I thought that... Um, I wanted to hold office. I still do. Um, I'm sure I will run for something in the next six years or so, um, definitely, in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And um, But I was on that track. If you go back and look at my resume, um, I ran for my first office at 27 years old in a three-to-one Democrat county, got 48% of the vote down in South Jersey, and got the nomination for Congress the following year. Sunday New York Times does a profile on me, and uh, I ended up having a very serious health issue, so I had to drop out. But 
I had always thought I'd go back, but I didn't. I just came to Washington and got caught up in living life, right? Yeah. But my point is, is that um, when I made the decision to break, it was because I just, it was a tipping point for me. I think some of it's just maturing, and I decided I wanted to go into private practice and, Mm -hmm. you know, to a big law firm, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. It was was too brutalizing. It was too, um, what I mean by that is just, you know, um, you get to a place in your life, I'm a Christian, I'm a person of faith, and I... I just don't want that toxic energy in my life. Yeah. I want to do something else, you but know. But for 20 years, you were in, it wasn't even like you you were doing something else and you're like, yeah, I guess I vote, yeah. I'll vote Republican. You were in the party. Like, you had a seat at the table. There were a lot of us. I didn't you have didn't, a seat. I had to, that's the good, that's a great not thing. Not the one big table, right. maybe. I got to look at the table. Right. I never got a seat. And again, look at, look at my qualifications and my resume. You tell me um, someone like me should have a big seat at the table. I've paid my dues. I've been loyal. Um, everything. It doesn't matter. And it's there are a whole lot of people like me. Um, and that's why you don't see them. There, there are a handful of people who, um, you know, fit maybe more of what uh, makes them comfortable on a show where we talk about what's uncomfortable. In 2008, you voted for then Obama. Senator Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Do you? Did you then? Do you now consider yourself a Democrat? No. No. God no. Why did you vote for? <laughs> why did you vote for Mr. Obama? He was amazing. Um, I thought he was a lifting. I thought he was hopeful, um, young, vibrant. Uh, no Senator McCain respect his service, but there was no comparison. Um, it was Obama's destiny. I got to cover them. I got to hang out with Michelle Obama in the in the garden and have tea in the back of the White House. One of the highlights of my life. Um, you know, interview her, uh, cover them both. Um, it was like a dream come true. It was just a blessing of things that happened. And my life took off in a very positive way once I left the GOP alone. So you did you agree with that? his policies? Um, not all of them, but see, here's the beauty of America and what I talk about in my book, E Pluribus Unum out of many one. Our founding motto, our founding fathers understood something. Although we had slaves at the time, although women were not yet full citizens, we know that that was wrong. Thank God we got that right. But this notion of oneness comes from our diversity. Mm-hmm. I don't have to agree with everything you say. I don't have to like everything you do to respect you, to hear you, to think, hmm, wow, that's good. So there were a lot of things that President Obama did. I don't like Obamacare. There are a lot of things he did I didn't like. But I liked the man. I liked the kind of family man he was. I liked his family values a lot better than what I've seen on the other side. Thank you very much. You know, people call him a Muslim and they attack him. And that offends me as a Christian because they attack this man for his faith. And the new president, who got a lot of support from the Christian community, I haven't seen him go to church yet. I don't think he does. With all due respect, I don't see this big man of faith. And Obama was that. You see what I'm I mean? I'm curious when, when you make, because you can like him and hang out with him and, and get to know the family and support him and respect him. But when you vote for someone, you're putting someone into office that you think believes in the same things that you do, will send the country in a direction that you want to see it go. I mean, policy-wise, he's a Democrat. Yeah, but I disagree with stark disagreement to everything that you were doing for 20 years as a Republican. I I think that I disagree with that. I don't think I have to agree with you or like you to look at my options. Like in this last election. Yeah, it was clear who I was voting for. Between McCain and Obama. It was clear. Obama had a vision. He was positive. Yes, he was African-American. And yes, that 
influence my vote quite a bit. I'm not going to lie about it. But I've you voted for the man, not for the for party. I voted for the man, yeah. I, I, and, and, I, and I don't regret those votes. Um, do I agree with everything he did? No. But I think he was a good president on balance. And I think that he um, did a good job for the country on balance. And I know there are people who will hate me for saying that, but that's just the truth. So what about people in the last election who voted for the man, who said that this is the guy I can get behind? You talking about Trump? Yeah. You know, I don't know what to say about that. Um, but they would use the same reasons you used, right, to vote for President Obama. Yeah, but President Obama wasn't caught on a tape saying some pretty unsavory things about what he'd do to women. President Obama didn't have a number of pending lawsuits, sexual harassment allegations. I mean, with all due respect to people, um, Trump had a lot of baggage, and um, Hillary was attacked for having baggage, which she had, no doubt. But there was definitely a double standard. And we saw something in this election that I think should check us as women, that we haven't gone as far as we thought we have gone, because she was clearly more qualified. Look, I worked on the Clinton investigations of the 90s. Mm -hmm. I was on those committees as a young Republican committee counsel. There are Republicans who hate the Clintons. I mean, there's a cottage industry of hating the Clintons. So I wasn't surprised when some of those things came up again. Mm -hmm. But when I had to put Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton side by side and say, who's got the temperament? Who do I think is going to make the better decisions? That Hillary was hands down, regardless of the things I don't like about her. I think that when you love your country, you put country over party. You put country over partisanship. And we're not seeing that now in American politics. It is one big food fight up there where they all hate each other, block each other, blackball each other, attack each other. It's no longer about we the people. It hasn't been for some time. You've spent so much time in the party. You have a unique perspective about how things work, about the priorities, about the power players. When Mr. Trump was elected, you said people really shouldn't be surprised. You wrote and you said that I actually see the natural consequences of the GOP's own choices when it comes to the elevation of Mr. Trump. What do you mean by that? Uh, do you remember during the primaries, and particularly when he, when it was clear he was going to get the nomination, and Republicans started scattering? And then remember when the whole uh, he was going to grab someone thing broke, um, they really scattered. I thought it was quite funny, actually. What did you think? the evolution of your party was going to be when you basically don't really understand women and women's rights and needs in this country, when you don't have any agenda for people of color or African Americans, which used to be your most natural constituency from Lincoln all the way until the 1960s, and you've you've built the party on, on Nixon's Southern strategy, which has worked for them in the short term. But this last election, Omna, if you look at the demographics, it tells a story. White people voted for this man in mass. Now, white people are the majority in our country, so it worked. He did terrible with communities of color. He, he did better than Romney in some places, though. True, but black men, black women, most loyal voting base for Hillary Clinton, 90%. White women sold Hillary Clinton out. How do you think he did better with black men in some places? I think that it was sexism. Just call it is what it is. I mean, there are, look, I grew up in the black, there's a lot of uh, sexism in the black community. Black women, and you saw the whole black women at work, hashtag trending and all of that. Uh, the way Maxine Waters was talked about the stereotype of the angry black woman. I wrote my whole first book around this mm -hmm. notion. And my point is, is that 
men are still men at the end of the day. And there are men, particularly men, like my dad would never vote for a woman for president. Probably if it was me, I don't think he would vote for me. He'd be <laughs> proud of me, but I don't think he'd vote for me because I just don't think he thinks a woman should be president. <laughs> he, You know, he's a 70-year-old man. He doesn't think a woman should be president. He's old school, right? So what I'm saying is I think that Hillary caught that wave of men who just it didn't matter they weren't and and i think some of those were black men because there could be no other reason that they voted for donald trump i mean over your years you still have many friends i'm sure who are republicans people sure. you know, did you raise these concerns to this degree with them you saw the open letter i did to kellyanne but right? that was last year yeah i mean i mean in about the now? years in advance no oh, i mean all those years oh, when God. you saw things come up i did but i was shut down called a troublemaker called names um blackballed all kind of things that i've written about pretty openly in the Washington Post and other places over the years and that's why I finally got disgusted and I'm like who and and it but wasn't did just me. people acknowledge that those problems existed and say this is not we can't deal with this or this is not our you know part of our yeah. mission or did they say no you're that's you're wrong no, this doesn't happen. This again isn't if you were talking to Christy Whitman and she was in here she'd say that's why I mean, think about someone like her who basically stepped back from Republican politics, people like Tom Ridge, the moderate conservative governors and people who were superstars in this party at one time. They were catching hell. Right. So if it wasn't working for them. You know, it wasn't working for me. And so I think that um, we've lost a lot of ground as a party from some really amazing people that we had who could have been of great service to their country. Uh, but they just Colin Powell. Look at Colin Powell. A Republican just like me, we have very similar values and thoughts. And how many times has he just said, shook his head, I can't do this. Something's wrong with this party. George Will, for God's sake, as conservative as it gets, wasn't happy with a Donald Trump victory. And as you know, really railed on the GOP during the last election and said he didn't consider himself a Republican anymore because there's a difference between being conservative on taxes and defense and Mm -hmm. things like that and then – attacking other people, belittling people, calling it your country, it's us versus them. Right. That's not where we want to be. That's not the United States of America. You've also said you don't believe Mr. Trump is a racist, but that he you do believe he's ignorant. I think he's a man of his generation. He's a 70-year-old, very privileged white male who has never really had a hard day in his life. And in the world in which he lives, I mean, you know, um, the inaugural, he's dancing the Frank Sinatra's uh, My Way, great song. But I think it tells a story. Um, He's a man in a time warp. He has no clue about people of color. He thought Frederick Douglass was still alive. I mean, you know. But where is the the line between being unaware or, or ignorant of those issues and being racist? The problem is, is that I can't see into a man's heart, right? I can only look at what he does. And what he does does not look good you and I would agree in terms of whether it's dealing with the the bans, the travel bans, uh, immigration, talking to African-American college presidents, whatever it is, there's ignorance there. It's ignorance to a level that I don't think I've ever seen in a president before. Um, And his staff is also very ignorant. Thus why I wrote that open letter to Kellyanne saying to her, I know you and I've known you for a long time and you worked on my first book with me as a white woman about black women Mm -hmm. and you did a great job. What are you doing? Like, why aren't you saying something about this? So let's let's know. talk about that. It was December 2016. Yes. Right? So I think so. Mr. Trump has won the election, mm-hmm. and they're preparing for inauguration. Mm-hmm. And you wrote a, a very passionate, detailed, open letter mm-hmm. to Kellyanne Conway. You've known her for years and mm-hmm. years. As you said, you guys came up together. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of similarities. You expected in your letter, you said you expect better of her. I do. 
And so why do you think she hasn't done the things that you want to see her? You want to see her advise the president to make certain strong statements, to stop saying things a certain way. Why do you think she hasn't? Well, let's look at the last 100 days. (laughs) There's Kellyanne pre-inauguration and there's Kellyanne post-inauguration. They're two very different people. As you recall, she got into a whole lot of hot water um, in her being a spokeswoman. She invented alternative facts, et cetera. So for me to answer that question as to why she hasn't advised him right, I would have to look at what she's done in the first 100 days, and it hasn't helped her or been helpful. Um, She's gotten herself in a lot of trouble, so I would have to assume that she's in alignment with what he believes and what he does. And and that's the conclusion I've had to come to, which but is, this is an the uncomfortable thing. conclusion. After after the election, y- you know her. You could have raised those concerns. Those things were concerns months before. I raised them. Trust me, I raised them. I, I don't get in. I'm, I'm not going to get in too much into people's private conversations. As you can imagine, you want to respect your friendships. But trust me, I've been waving this flag for a long time. And when people so you raised them privately with her, and then when you didn't, when she didn't listen, you wrote a public letter. I told her I was going to do the letter too. I would never blindside anybody. That's not the kind of person I am. But I think what troubles me is is the lack of. I just don't think they care. Can can I just say it like that? I just don't think it's important. I think that what's, what's in, not important. The issues that people like me are raising, the march. I just don't think it's important. I think they think it's a nuisance. Look at the comments. I think they believe they, you know, uh, there was a pro-life march, for example. Now, the vice president, I know well because I work with him on the Government Reform and Oversight Committee when he was a congressman. Mm-hmm. Good man, godly man, faithful to his wife. He's as good as they get, salt of the earth. He believes this. And what I'm saying is I think that they really believe when you listen to Spicer and you listen to Kellyanne, the rhetoric of this is our time. We are taking our country back. Um this is the way things should be done. It's it's all bad before us. And I think they believe that. So when somebody believes that and thinks that way, it's really hard to move them in a different direction. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're true believers. But what, I mean, from your perspective, for the concerns that you've been raising about women's rights and, and racial equality and civil rights, are you basically saying they're ignoring all of that? Yeah. That, it doesn't matter. It just does not matter. It's one thing to give a speech and to have talking points and to say we care. But love is a is a verb, as my grandmother used to say. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's action. So don't tell me that you care about communities of color, et cetera, but you have rallies where people of color are getting punched in the face and, uh, you know, it's, it's a very ugly kind of rhetoric that's coming out of Um, the rallies that we saw leading up to the election, right? And it just nobody seemed to care. The things Trump has gotten away with are astounding to me, but they're informative, and I take them serious. At the same time, he won. He did. That's my point. So what does that say? says a lot about where we are demographically, and I open my book with this. um, Whenever you see, you're seeing it in France, you saw it in Britain, nationalism is on the rise all over the world. And that's because more people of color, the more Muslims that immigrate over into Europe, the more uncomfortable they get. The more immigrants that come into the United States of America, the more uncomfortable we get. Because the white majority, any majority, if it was black, Middle Eastern, whatever, it's the same thing. The big tribe, 
doesn't like when the little tribes begin to get power, right? So we we begin to oppress, we begin to uh, obstruct, erect barriers. It's been consistent throughout human history. So I'm not surprised, which is what I said. Um, you can see it now, particularly with the French election with Le Pen. And so I think that um, you're going to see more of this. And I think that what it says is that there was a big group of people in this country that Hillary Clinton did not talk to and she did not connect with who wanted change, who were not happy with things. I don't think they were all racist. I don't think any of that. That's unfair. I think that they have a different lens than I do as a woman of color. I live a very different life in this country than does a Caucasian woman or someone else. Whether they want to believe that or not, I really don't care. I'm over it. You get 50, you don't care about what people think anymore. You just don't. So. Well, let me ask you this. In the context of the political parties, right? Because right. this is we've, we've got a two-party system. You're, you know, This is how we bring about legislative change on a, mm-hmm. on a big level here. The last polls we have show basically equal discontent with the Democrats and the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Something like nearly 70% mm-hmm. of people think mm-hmm. the Democrats are out of touch mm-hmm. and just slightly less when mm-hmm. it comes to the Republicans. Well, I think they are out of touch. If you look at Elizabeth Warren and some of those people who, again, good people, but, you know, the issue, if you take everything from whether it's gay rights to transgender rights to whatever, I think those issues became a real problem for the people that voted for Trump. You, you understand mm-hmm. what I mean? They, the, the people who, again, where I live in the Bible Belt and, and, and further south, you know, we have guns, you know, all those things. It's a different cultural mindset. So the more liberal the Democrats were perceived as being completely out of touch with regular but working these numbers people. aren't about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. These are about the you know, other establishment Democrats, the Chuck Schumer's, the Nancy Pelosi's. They're, this, they're talking about the party, but they as think a whole. they're liberal. Is my point, or they think they've gone too far left? So we're in agreement that that there's discontent on both sides. But I think that the Republican answer can't be the right way either. It can't be to say we're going to take our country back, us versus them, because that isn't America either. So I think both of them are polarized. Whereas the glut of us sit in the middle, because America's so a center-right country. But this is the question, then. If, if that's where they are, and if that's the way people feel about them, then where does the unity come from? You've, you've talked about how the Republican Party has basically set itself up over the last several decades to actively divide, to remove a whole it's section of the country it's and worked. say, we're not going to speak to you. Yep. People feel equally discontent with the Democrats at yep. this point. So how are we supposed to come together? I think it gets back to the answer is us. The answer is we the people. And the whole premise of my book is that it was never about government. It was never about them in the Congress. Our founders understood that government needed to be small, that it had to be a a citizen-informed run government. And the day that that changed, we would end up with what we have. Lobbyists run this country. I was one in one of the world's biggest law firms. I can tell you about $2,000 lunches and bottles of Dom Perignon with your members of Congress and the deals that get cut and the money that goes into appropriation bills. People have no clue how jacked up, my words, that whole situation is on Capitol Hill. It's not about us anymore. We don't have a voice. And so the only way that we fix this is that we have to fix this. And the beauty of our system is that we still have the power of the vote. We have a a system of government that has checks and balances. You know, if you look at this, for example, the immigration ban that just got shot down Mm -hmm. or the travel ban, it's it's a beautiful thing to watch the checks of power in our country. No other place on earth has this. And so we really do have power as the people. And what I'm saying is we're being played, if you will, because we're fighting each other 
and we're not the enemy. Um, the, the, the Mexicans who come across the border are not the problem. The Muslims who come in from other countries are not the problem. The problem is how we, the people, have disengaged. 50% of this country did not vote in the last election. That's appalling. In a country where people have bled and died for the right to vote, there's there's just a disengagement. We're greedy. It's about me. As long as I have my BMW at my nice, beautiful Northern Virginia house and all my stuff, I don't really care what goes on, right? Let me ask you this. In your career, at this stage, I realize it's it's different, but you were a lobbyist. You were on the Hill. You worked for all those campaigns. You helped to build that system that you are now railing against. Do you wish that you hadn't? I don't agree that I helped to build anything. I think that, like I said, I had a seat I got to watch. I didn't get to participate. And you and I but could have this lobbyist. conversation. Well, a lawyer in a firm, lobbyist. But I worked in cyber, intel, and national security. I had a very different practice. Um, and so my point is I wasn't an appropriator. I got to watch. And um, I did a very unique, different thing um, that had to do with national security. That was my area, just so you know. I don't right. know if you knew that about no, me. No, but I wonder how many people who are part of that system then – that well, that's why I got out. So I got out because two things. One, the money is awesome, right? You get paid well. You get which is it. why you do it, you, right? You do it, and and when you're young, you do it because you got to pay your law school loans back. Can I just be honest? I mean, just telling the truth. This is me. Sure, I'm telling you that at some point, if you're a young attorney or whatever, you're gonna have to go pay your dues in one of those places because you got to pay back those loans right. that you got, and you can't do it working at the nonprofit. You da 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 da. It doesn't work. However. Uh, what I saw, again, has prompted me to write the things I do, to do the books I've done, particularly this last one. I'm disturbed. I'm concerned about where we are. And um, I'm raising a flag like a whole lot of people going, folks, we got to wake up. This isn't good. And it really comes back to us saying we've had enough. I'm disappointed with the last election. Not, you know, It's not about Donald Trump. It's bigger than Donald Trump. The president of the United States should tell the truth. The president of the United States should not be on Twitter saying things that could really cause global conflict. The president of the United States should be responsible with his or her dialogue. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this before, ever, regardless of party, ever. You said how you know the people in the party who you think have turned the Republican Party into the party of Trump, of what it is today, but that you won't name their names. Uh -uh. Why not? Too many. (laughs) We got time. (laughs) We got time. That doesn't help anybody. I think we all know. No, but you know. called out Kellyanne Conway by name. Well, but that's a little bit different because I know her, right? And I can talk from a firsthand experience of saying, hey, you worked on this book with me about black women. And I went to you as a pollster because I was going to prove the point that I didn't care that you were a white woman. You could do your job. Yeah. And you could help me. And you did. And there's a relationship. So I feel like I can do it with her. Because you have I a start, personal relationship. Yeah, I mean, her. you know, start calling off people from, you know, all kind of RNC chairs in the past, whatever. The one good guy who was the RNC chair, I forget his name, Ken something or other. You remember like around 04, he did an apology and, and he was, um, he didn't last very long. He's a young guy. I can't hmm. remember his name, but he was trying to, he understood, look, Lee Atwater, had he lived, Lee Atwater, had he lived, GOP be a very different party. Not because Lee cared. Lee was strategic and he was smart and he was moving Daddy Bush in the direction of that big tent because remember they were going to Howard they had right. they had a whole plan and then unfortunately he got sick and died I think that he W's uh, dad would have been reelected I think there wouldn't have been a history would have been changed right my point is is that uh, there were some Republicans who got it 
And unfortunately, those Republicans didn't rise to the top. The Christy Whitmans, the Tom Ridges, the the um, Bill Welds. They those didn't people, rise because people didn't respond to them or because the party forced them they, out? They they were forced out. They were, they were never going to go higher because they were pro-choice Republicans. And again, I think that's ridiculous. I mean, Christy Whitman, you know, the first female governor of New Jersey, one of the first women governors, uh, had the right family background, uh, attractive, smart, married kids. She had everything. And pro-choice, because George W. Bush really wanted to pick her for his running mate. And you just have to take my word for that. <laughs> Your book is all about how we come together now, how we actually unify and move forward. Is it going to happen in the political sphere, or does it have to happen outside of that? That's such a great question. It's perfect. It has to happen outside of that. And we have to begin to come together in our communities. We have to begin to stand up for what's right. We have to begin to protect other people and raise our voice. You know, um, it was Holocaust Remembrance Day, the day before yesterday, and you know that Sean Spicer made some really bad comments that got him in a lot of trouble about Hitler didn't gas his people or something. Unbelievable. Ignorance. You see what I mean? That level of ignorance is dangerous. And I bring that up to say that, you know, the Holocaust, what people need to remember about the Holocaust is that it didn't start with gas chambers and all. It started with divisiveness. It started with rhetoric. It started with Hitler saying, the Jews are to blame for your problems, Germans. It's their fault. They have and you don't. It's pitting people against. It's And, and then the rest of us sitting by and going, well, it has nothing to do with me because I'm not a Jew. It does have something to do with you. If you're picking on Muslims in my neighborhood, I'm getting involved in it. And I might not be a Muslim and I might be a big Christian and I am. But to me, my faith demands that I treat other people right and that I love others. So I have to do something with it. Right. And what bothers me is we'll talk about we're people of faith. We'll talk about all these things. But then we turn our head when we see wrong and when we see people being treated wrong. Because it doesn't have anything to do with us. Well, yes, it does. So what are you calling on people to do? How do if it's not through politics, if it's not go run for office because we need more people who well, come think, from their I own communities? I think that has well, to what? happen, but it starts at the grassroots level, right? And what I mean by that, it starts in, you know, uh, one of the things that I'm trying to get done in our church in Northern Virginia, I go to a big church and then we have um, a, uh, a big mosque that's uh, not too far down as well. I want to do some type of thing where we, like, sit down and talk. Like, I'm trying to broker this. I'm like, why aren't we having a conversation? Let's just talk to each other other we, we may not ever agree on the tenets of our faith but we both believe in God and 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 can't we talk to each other and let's figure out how we help each other how do I protect you how do you protect me I and I say the tenets of the faith are remarkably similar across all I, the Abrahamic I, faiths exactly yeah. so what I'm saying is is that we have to find our commonalities we have to find the things that unite us and not divide us I have more in common with some people that don't look like me than they think and vice versa. Because at the end of the day, I'm the, all we want, all of us, we want a good life. We want to be able to feed our families. We want a vacation once in a while. We, we you know, we want to laugh with our neighbors. We want to cook out. on we, we just, we, we, we all pretty much want the same kind of basic things. And, and I think we're forgetting that because we're caught up in, well, I don't have it because it's her fault. It's not. And that's what I feel like this last campaign divided this country because it said that some of us were better than others. It said that, um, you know, 
it was our country versus their country. No, this is all of our country. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, that's us. And so we have to run for office. I need to elect my next door neighbor to Congress and throw out who I have in Congress, regardless of party. They've all been there too long. They need to go. I wish we had term limits. I think there are things we could do that we just don't do. But when we raise our voice, we get things done in this country. But we got lazy because we like these things. This is what we do. This is we we don't have to talk. Tiny anymore. computers, tiny yes. computers in our pockets. Absolutely. So when are you going to run? Because it's on the record now. <laughs> it's going to be Let's a minute. It. It'll be a minute. Yeah. Yeah. I'm waiting for one of those Senate seats to come open in Virginia. And um, but that probably let's see. Um, uh, Mark Warner will probably be. I would think he would run another term, and then I think we'll see what it looks like. You know, about five six years down the road. I should. I should have amassed a fortune by then and be in pretty good shape. I like your optimism. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Sophia Nelson, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>